Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. What we're doing this semester in RUF is we are studying through the stories that Jesus told, um, often referred to as parables. And one of the reasons that we're doing that is because listening to the stories that someone tells is a great way to get to know them. But also what's wonderful about the parables is they do something very specific in our lives. Um, they, They act on us in a certain way. Listening to the parables of Jesus is, is sort of like the difference between um, listening to a physics professor talk about how a star works um, versus going to the Museum of Modern Art and sitting in front of Van Gogh's Starry Night. Do you understand the difference? If you sit in a physics class and you listen to a, a physics professor, and I'm going to offend all the physics majors in the room, I apologize, but if you listen to a physics professor, he's writing up a formula on the board and he's telling you, like, this is how a star holds together, and it's the speed of light, and this is how long it takes for it to get to your eyeball on Earth, and isn't that amazing? And you're kind of like, eh, kind of, but like... But then you go to the MoMA, and you sit in front of Van Gogh's Starry Night, and, and you take it in. It's not telling you how, how it works. It's telling you what it's like. What is it like? What, what is it like to sit under the night sky in the French countryside, night after night after night, and to watch the breeze move through the trees, and to watch the stars slowly move across the sky and see how the light changes over the course of the night. Like, that is what parables do. Both of those things, the physics professor and the Van Gogh painting, are interested in telling you the truth about the night sky, but they're inviting you into a very different relationship with that truth. And what the parables are doing is they're inviting you into a relationship with the truth about God that engages you, that brings you into the beauty of that thing. Does that make sense? So that's why we're studying the parables. Tonight, we're going to look at two stories that Jesus tells us. And what he's doing in these stories is he's telling us this is what it's like to know and be known by the God of the Bible. This is what it's like to know and be known by the God of the Bible. So let's look together at Luke chapter 15. We're just going to read 10 verses. Somebody's having a party out there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then he comes home, and he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, 
having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Since this is God's word and not mine, let's pray and ask for his help as we look, for it, look at it tonight. God, we need your help. I need your help. Would you, would you speak to us tonight through this, through your word? Uh, would you speak life into our world? Would you, would you bring us in, draw us in to the beauty of what it is like to know you and be known by you? It's in Jesus we ask these things. Amen. So we're going to look at three things tonight about this parable. I don't always alliterate, but for whatever reason tonight we're alliterating. We're going with the letter P tonight. So we're going to look at the pattern, the party, and the point. What's the point? The so what? So we're looking at the pattern in these stories, the party in these stories, and the point. So let's let's dive in. The pattern. Very simply, um, you could sum up both of these stories as something is lost and then something is found. That's the pattern. Very simple. Something is lost and something is found. But in that simple storyline, Jesus is actually telling us something very profound. Let's just start with with lost here. When you look at the things that are lost here in this passage, the first thing that we see that's lost is a sheep. Now, if you have been around Christianity for a little while, if you have come to church before, you have probably heard a pastor like me stand up and say, this is what sheep are like. Sheep are dumb. And the reason, and the reason that, that pastors stand up and say that sheep are dumb is because sheep actually are dumb. Um, they really are unintelligent creatures. Uh, a sheep will eat anything that is green, even if it is poisonous. Like literally, if a sheep is eating something that is green and it will kill them, they will eat it until they die. Unless a shepherd comes along and is like, let's move along now. That's going to kill you, right? Like they will do that. They will wander off of a cliff. If a sheep gets lost, it can't find its way home. It has no resources to find its way home. If a dog or a cat gets lost, they have like a homing device inside them. They can figure out how to get home. A sheep doesn't know how to do that. Usually a sheep doesn't even realize it's lost and it just kind of wanders around until some other animal comes along and eats it. But if it does realize it's lost, it doesn't try to find its way home. It literally just lays down in the dirt. That's what sheep do. It doesn't know what to do. It's completely helpless. So that's the first thing, like a sheep, a dumb, lost, helpless sheep. Second thing, a coin. Stating the obvious here, but a coin is an inanimate object. If you lose a coin, there was no uh, like find your iPhone for coins in the ancient world. And so if you lose a coin, it's just lost. It can't find its way back to you. It can't call out to you and be like, I'm over here in the corner under the paper. Like it can't because it's a coin. And so Jesus, just right here in this little, these little details, is telling us something profound about the human experience. He's saying, actually, that part of what it means to be human is to be lost, is to be helpless. Now, you're a New York City college student. You don't want to hear me tell you that you're helpless because we hear helpless and we think useless, right? You're like, I got into college in New York City. I made it here. I'm talented. I'm gifted. I can achieve things like people like me. Come on, dude. Give me a break, right? And that's not what Jesus means when he means helpless here. He doesn't mean useless. 
He doesn't mean lacking in talent or lacking in gifts. He means helpless with respect to something very specific. Helpless with respect to your ability to find your way home is what Jesus means. And again, he's putting his finger on something very profound about what it means to be human because you and I were actually created for a home. We were created for a very specific kind of life. If you think back to the very beginning of the Bible, we were created for paradise. What Adam and Eve had in the garden was paradise. They had perfect flourishing. They had perfect relationships with themselves, with one another, with the world around them, and with God. They had no guilt They had no shame. They had no anxiety. Can you imagine living in a world where there's no guilt and no shame and no anxiety? That's the opposite of college. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, I would love to live in that world. I would love to live in that world. And that is the world that Adam and Eve lived in. And that is the world that we were created to live in. When yesterday, Lydia prayed about this earlier, the 17th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks right here in New York City. If you, if you went to a vigil or you went to an event or you read something online that was sort of remembering what that day was like, you probably felt something. You felt sadness. You felt anger. You felt confusion and frustration. You felt sorrow. You felt something. You know what that, you know what that feeling was? That was an ache. That was homesickness. That was, that was a longing to live in a world where we are not at war with one another. Where people do not blow themselves up in order to blow up their enemies. That was homesick. When you leave RUF tonight, or you leave class tomorrow, or you leave a party this weekend, and you start playing the recording of everything you said and did while you were at RUF or in that class or at that party, and you start saying things like, Oh, I hope nobody heard that. I can't believe I said that. That was so stupid. What is wrong with me? When you start doing that to yourself, do you know what that is? That's homesickness. That's that's the ache. That's the longing to live in a world where you are not at war with yourself. Where you are not snowed under with shame constantly. It's a longing for home, for the world that we were created for. And what Jesus is saying here is that we are helpless to make our way back into that paradise. We cannot make our way back into right relationship with God, into right relationship with ourselves, with one another, with the world around us. We are helpless to fix that problem. That's what Jesus is saying about what it means to be lost. We're like a sheep that's wandered off. We're like a coin that fell off the table. We cannot make our way home. So here's the question. How do you find what's lost? How do you find what's lost? That's the second part of these stories that Jesus is telling. Well, very simply, the way you find what is lost is you go to where it is. You go to where it is. You don't just stand there like, hey, sheep, we're over here. That's not going to help the sheep. That's not going to help the coin. You got to go to where it is. And that's what happens here in this passage. The woman in the second parable She figures out that she's lost her coin. And what does she do in verse eight? She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. Now, Jesus's early hearers would have known that the reason she's lighting a lamp is because she's probably poor and she lives in a house that doesn't have any windows. It's on the bottom floor of a house and it's a dirt floor. And she's probably sharing that floor and that house with other animals. And so it's a nasty floor. And so what does she have to do in order to find that coin? She has to get down into that mess. 
in order to find the thing that she loves. The second thing that Jesus shows us is a shepherd. Now, this is a shepherd with a hundred sheep. That's a lot of sheep in the ancient world. It's a wealthy man. And if you had a hundred sheep, you wouldn't care for that flock all by yourself. You would probably have several other shepherds. You'd have a team of shepherds helping you to keep those sheep safe. And so what this shepherd is actually doing when he wanders away from the 99 other sheep and all the shepherds that are taking care of those 99 other sheep is he's actually becoming vulnerable. He's taking on a risk. Because to wander away from the flock and all the other shepherds is actually to, like, they would look out for one another. They would protect one another. They would warn one another if there were signs of danger. And so he's wandering out by himself to go and seek what he loves. But it's dangerous. It's vulnerable for him. He could get attacked by thieves or robbers. He could get attacked by some other animal. He could fall in a ditch and break his leg and nobody would be able to find him. He's taking on risk. He's becoming vulnerable. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is the one telling these parables. A few chapters later in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says this about himself. He says, the son of man came to do this. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And then in in John's gospel, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this about himself. He's in front of a huge crowd of people and he says, I am the good shepherd. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the one who's, who's come to get down into the mess, to become vulnerable, to come to where you are in order to find you and save you. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, how does he do that? How does Jesus do this? How does he bring us home? He comes to where we are. He descends into the mess. He becomes vulnerable. Listen to how the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 describes Jesus doing this. He says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't stay far away. He didn't stay safe. He didn't stay insulated. He wasn't just up in heaven calling out like, I'm up here. Figure it out. Find your way to me. Now, what did he do? He came down. He took on flesh. Paul continues, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in human form. Listen to this. He humbled himself. He descended into the mess. He got down on his hands and knees in the dirty, nasty floor. And then it says he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That what Jesus has done is he's actually stooped down into our mess, into my mess, and died the death that we deserve, the death that I deserve, in order to begin the process of bringing us home. He descended into death. He came all the way down. But he didn't stay there. He didn't stay there. A few days later, he rises out of the grave. And do you know what that is? The Apostle Paul in another place, he describes the resurrected Jesus, the bodily, real life, like used to be dead, now is alive Jesus as the first fruits of the new creation. Do you know what first fruits is? We have these, we have these long, cold, dreary, dark, depressing winters here in New York City. Um, the, like all the color drains out of the city and um, all the leaves fall off of the trees and the skies are gray and the grass turns brown and, and it's sad. Um, and I just want to hide in my apartment all day and you will too, uh, if you haven't experienced it yet, but something happens, 
uh, late April, early May, something happens. These little red buds begin to appear on some of the trees and some of the bushes. And do you know what those are? They're first fruits. They're these little promises. They're saying, listen, the death of winter is about to be over. Life and color and warmth, all of that is about to take the city by storm. Like they're, they're these little promises that like color is coming back. Life is coming back. The sun is going to rise again on New York City. And what Paul says is that is who the resurrected Jesus is. He's this little red bud saying, listen, all this death, all this disease, all this guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and suffering, it's not going to stay. And one day it's going to be gone. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. He's, like, he's the firstborn of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth where every sad thing becomes untrue and he makes it all right again. And so what Jesus is doing, what, what, what Jesus is describing here is that the way that he finds what is lost is by going all the way into and out of death. And the way that you and I get found is to look at ourselves and say, I'm helpless. I'm lost without you. And Jesus, I need you to find me. I need you to bring me into the life that you're bringing into the world. That's how you get found. That's the pattern here in these parables. And that's great news, but it gets even better. That's great news, but it gets even better. Let's look at the second thing, the party. Did you notice that these stories don't end after the thing that is lost gets found? They don't end there. Jesus could have stopped after the sheep gets found and the shepherd goes home and the coin gets found and the lady's like, sweet, I got all my coins, right? And he could have just been like, story over, but he doesn't stop there. And why doesn't he stop there? He, he ends each of these stories with a party, a, a huge celebration. Now, why is this so important? Well, first, let's just look. Verse six. The shepherd comes home. He calls together his friends and his neighbors. He's not just celebrating privately. He's calling all of his friends and neighbors together. And he says to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. The woman does the same thing in verse nine. She finds the coin. She calls together her friends and neighbors and says the same thing almost. Rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, why is this so important? This is really important for us because I think we often are suspicious of God. And even if we grant uh, that he's real, and even if we grant that he is willing to come down and rescue us, I think we often wonder if he does that begrudgingly. I think we often wonder, um, does he do this with disappointment? Like, is he sort of the shepherd wandering out to find the lost sheep? And he's like, a stupid sheep. I can't believe I have to go find a sheep again. And I think we think that's how God thinks about us. That he's got disappointment. He's got frustration. And even if maybe there's a little bit of joy when he finds us, after that, he's just waiting for us to screw up. I think most of us think that God is this like, basically a divine police officer in the sky. And sometimes he's in a bad mood and sometimes he's in a good mood and you never really know what you're going to get. Sometimes he's going to come down hard. And sometimes he's going to dole out grace and mercy and you're just not really sure what's going to happen, right? He's out there watching. He's trying to keep people in line. He's trying to keep you in line. Maybe he's going to throw some forgiveness at you if you really screw things up. 
But I think that's how most of us think about God. A couple things about that. First thing, that God will never be worthy of your love. Why would you love a God like that? He might be worthy of your respect. He might be worthy of your fear. But he would never be worthy of your love. He would never be worthy of your heart. You would never find him beautiful. And when I say beautiful, I mean, I mean like national parks beautiful. Like when you go to the Grand Canyon and you peer out over the edge and, and it just like swallows you up the magnificence of the whole thing. That's what I mean. God, uh, police officer God will never be that to you. The things that you will find, you know what you'll find beautiful instead of God? You'll find, um, you'll find being successful very beautiful. You'll find making a lot of money very beautiful. Nothing wrong with either one of those things. You'll find sexual, finding sexual fulfillment very beautiful. You'll find building a great career or having a wonderful family. You'll find those things to be very beautiful. They will capture your heart, but God will never capture your heart. It'll never overwhelm you with its beauty. It'll never be worthy of your love. But the second thing is, and this is great news, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. He does not come begrudgingly. He does not come with condemnation. He does not come um, with, with frustration. He comes to throw a friggin' party for you. Do you see this? He is so overwhelmed with joy. That is the God of the Bible. The very next story, right after these two stories that Jesus tells, he rolls right into another very famous parable called the parable of the prodigal son. It's about a father who has two, two sons. And the first son in that story, at the very beginning of the story, he goes to the father and he's like, listen, pops, you're great and all, but not really. I'd rather have your stuff than you. You're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance now. I'm out of here. And the father amazingly gives him all the stuff. And the son takes off and he's like, peace. I'm out. I got what I wanted. And he leaves. And he runs off to the far country with all of his new resources and all of his new money. And we don't really know for how long, but eventually he runs out of stuff. He runs out of money. And he becomes quite destitute. He is like helping take care of these pigs. And he's looking at what the pigs are eating. And he's longing to eat what the pigs eat. And in that moment, he has this epiphany. He's like, man, you know what? The servants in my father's house are doing better than me right now. I'm going to go home and beg my father to let me back home, not as a son, but as a servant. And so he rehearses this speech and he's like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, Father, I know I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Would you just let me in as a servant? And so he starts to make his way home. And while he is still a long way off, Jesus includes this detail that while he was still a long way off, the father sees him and he runs and to Jesus' original hearers, the people that Jesus is speaking to, they hear Jesus talk about how the father is running out to the son and they're thinking, oh, he's going to get it. That father's going to run out there and smack that son and say, you don't deserve to be my son. I can't believe you would show your face here. Get out of here. But what does he do? He runs out and he covers him in kisses. He takes off his robe and he puts his robe on him. He takes off his ring. He puts his ring on his finger. It's a way of saying you're back in the family. You have full status of sonship again. And then he takes the son back to the house and he looks around at all the servants and he says, kill the fatted calf. We are throwing what? A party. And not just any party. The fatted calf, listen, y'all. The fatted calf was like, it was good. 
<laughs> the fatted calf was, was what you killed to eat when, when you were going to... It was, it was a way of saying, this is literally the best day of my life. Like, there's no other time to kill the fatted calf unless you're like, we are ready to party like we have never partied before and like we're never going to party again. It's a huge animal, so you're going to invite all the town. It's a huge celebration. And the fa- this is the Father's heart. This is the God of the Bible. That. Do you realize that Jesus' first miracle... John, I think it's John chapter 2. The way that he inaugurates his ministry, do you know what he does? He turns water into wine. He's at a wedding. They run out of wine at the wedding. Running out of wine at an ancient Near Eastern, Eastern wedding is like going down the aisle in your underwear. It was just completely unthinkable. <laughs> you, it, was, it was a huge, massive party foul. The families would never live it down. It was a huge shame. And, and Jesus is like, not on my watch. We're not going to run out of wine at a wedding party on my watch. And so what does he do? He goes into the back room. He turns all the water into wine. He keeps the party going. That's Jesus's, That's how Jesus starts his ministry in John's gospel. Do you realize at the end, at the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, as the Bible is, is talking about these different scenes from this new heavens and this new earth, what this home is going to look like, what happens? Big old party. Wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus, the groom, and his bride, the church, celebrating, feasting together. This is the heart of the God of the Bible. To joyfully party, to joyfully feast with his people. You realize, we kind of glossed over it at the very beginning of the parable, but there are two groups of people listening to Jesus. And some of those people, the tax collectors and the sinners, were it says were drawn to him. They couldn't stay away from Jesus. Do you know why they were drawn to him? Because they knew. We don't deserve a party. But Jesus is inviting us in anyways. He was, he was like a magnet for people like that. Because they knew there's something different about this guy. He doesn't come at us with condemnation. He comes at us with joy. And the, and the Pharisees and the scribes were ticked at Jesus. And they were ticked because they thought, we deserve the party. Thank you very much. And you're inviting all the wrong people, Jesus. And they were hacked off at Jesus. They weren't drawn to him. They despised him. This is the God of the Bible. The party. Last point. What is the point? So what? Why does it matter for us to see this about God? Uh, I want to speak to three specific people and then we'll be done. First, um, the skeptic, the, uh, the curious about Christianity. If you're here tonight and you're investigating Christianity, you're not really sure, you're interrogating Christianity, um, let me just ask you, are you drawn to this Jesus in any way? Are you drawn to this good shepherd in any way? Because if you are, I would just simply ask you, keep coming back. Keep coming back to hear more about who Jesus is and what he's like. Because this is what we're going to do all semester. And I'd love for you to learn with us. But the other thing I'll ask you is, I think what Jesus is doing for you in this passage is he's actually inviting you to imagine what it would be like to begin your day um, not working for love, but working from love. I hope that distinction makes sense. Like when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, that you're not thinking about all the things that you have to go and do that day. And you're not thinking about like, am I going to do enough? 
Am I going to justify my own existence today? And at the end of my life, will I have done enough for my life to matter? That's a question that hangs over all of us. Am I going to have done enough for my life to matter? But what if you already had the answer to that question? I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to consider, inviting you to consider tonight. What if you already had the answer to that question? What if the baseline of your life was not, am I going to do enough to matter? But instead was that the God of the universe throws a party of joy at your presence in his family. What if that was the baseline of your life? I think that's something worth considering. The second group of people, tired Christians. I know a lot of you are in this room. I have a lot of conversations with you that you are a Christian, you identify as a Christian, and you are anxious, and you are tired. And you've been a Christian a long time, maybe, and it feels dry, and it feels joyless, and you wonder, is God even worth it? Is God even there? And you think maybe, you know, maybe it used to be a party. Maybe it was a party when I became a Christian, but it doesn't feel like a party anymore. I think Jesus has gone off and he's partying with somebody else now. A um, couple things. First thing, I have those questions too. Everybody on our staff has those questions too. Uh, Moses had those questions. David had those questions. Peter had those questions. Loads of Christians have had those questions. You are not alone in those questions. But the other thing is, the way that you feel about your relationship with God is not the truest thing about your relationship with God. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that Jesus is inviting us into here in this passage. Is that the truest thing about you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the truest thing about you is not how you feel about your relationship with God. The truest thing about you is that you belong to a father who is overwhelmed with joy at the thought of you being in his family. That's the truest thing about you. New York City cannot give that to you. New York City cannot take that away from you. Your achievements cannot give that to you. They cannot take that away from you. Your feelings cannot give that to you. Your feelings cannot take that away from you. So ask yourself, who is my father? What is he like? Like sit before the painting. Sit before Van Gogh's Starry Night in passages like this and ask yourself, what is my father like? Is he cold and distant? Or is he warm and joyful? Last group and then we're done. The full-hearted Christian. You, you may be a Christian here tonight and, and you feel like, I, yes, amen. I hear you and I feel that. And now I'm wondering, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? Very simply, come to the party and bring your friends. Come to the party and bring your friends. There's an implicit rebuke here in this passage, in these parables that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees and the scribes. Because they are invited to the party also. But what are they doing? They're standing outside grumbling about who's been invited. They're frustrated. And, and part of what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, you're invited to the party. Come on in, like party with me and bring your friends. Don't be upset. I'm the host. Don't be upset about who I'm bringing. And so if that's you, what I would encourage you to do is go. Go with that full heart. Make friends. Ask questions. Listen to them. Understand, seek to understand what it is that makes them tick. What it is that brings them joy. What it is that makes them anxious. 
love them well, not as projects, but as real people. Whether they decide to put their faith in Jesus or not, love them well. And introduce them to the good shepherd who loves to throw parties. That's what we're all invited into tonight. Would you pray with me? Thank you.